Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. As the world's first IMBA Gold Level Ride Center since 2012, Park City, Utah is a premier mountain biking destination. What makes Park City a Gold Level Ride Center? For starters, the immediate area boasts a diverse variety of trails spread across 450 miles, with everything from paved commuting paths for a family-friendly ride to aggressive cross-country rides like the epic Wasatch Crest Trail. Combined with magnificent scenery, numerous bars and restaurants, world-class accommodations, free public transit, and a wide range of entertainment options, it's no wonder that Park City was awarded gold. Experiencing Park City, Utah has never been easier, and there's never been a better time than now. Arrange your stay, rent a bike, and book a guide by visiting mountainbikingparkcity.com. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest is Ken Avery. So Ken is the Vice President of Product and Marketing for Vittoria, the world's leading producer of bicycle tires. As an industry insider for many years, Ken has a wealth of knowledge on everything from mountain bike product design to marketing. Thanks for joining us, Ken. Thanks for having me, man. I'm a big fan of your podcast and your website. I've been following it for a very long time, and so it's a, it's a great honor to be here, actually. Yeah, that's right. We were talking a couple of years ago about how Singletrack started out as Mud Honey was the name of the site, and you were like, "Is that the same site?" Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I used to I used to sit in college at UMass Amherst and just like troll the internet for mountain bike websites when there were very very few, and and that was uh, one of the first. So I thought I thought <laughs> it was really cool that it was all connected, you know. Yeah, yeah. So how did you get your start in the bike industry? You know, I grew up skateboarding and I always kind of liked like individual sports and things like that. And, and, you know, I mean, I played regular sports too, but it was the kind of thing where I always was drawn to that type of a thing where, you know, there weren't rules. You could kind of do it however you wanted and, hmm. and, uh, kind of a self, ex- self expression thing. A buddy of mine who I used to skate with, uh, he grew really tall, really fast when we were kids and his knees are really weak. And his doctor told him to ride a bike. Hmm. And that was, was right around when mountain biking was kind of starting to pop, like in, yeah. in the early night. So it was like literally like 19, 1990 when this happened. And, um, so I'm 42 years old, but, um, you know, I still act like I'm 20, I guess, but anyway, <laughs> the, uh, so anyway, he got a mountain bike, this new mountain bike thing. And I was like, well, that, that, that's pretty cool. You can cover a lot of ground on that thing, yeah. you know? And we lived in kind of suburban Eastern Connecticut, almost, almost by Rhode Island, kind of, mm-hmm. there were just like a ton of like fire roads everywhere and, and trails and stuff. And so I used to ride like an old Schwinn 10 speed around and explore these trails. And then finally saved up and ended up getting a mountain bike. And, and then I was totally hooked and, uh, grew up kind of racing through my teens, mm. did okay. The, the super short version is um, I bumped into Kathy Sessler, who actually runs the syndicate team now, uh-huh. and she was at the Mount Snow World Cup. Uh, Mount Snow, Vermont was sort of like our East Coast big mountain bike race yeah. at the time. And so, yeah, like I got a flat tire during practice. She gave me an inner tube. Um, I was like totally starstruck that like a pro would give some kid an inner tube. And <laughs> I mean, literally like was so floored and went out to a bike shop, bought an inner tube, came back after the race and gave it to her and 
she thought that that was funny because she was like a pro Roger retire company. And, uh, anyway, we just kind of like kept in contact and I would send her drawings like from study hall of like tires that I was thinking about. Huh, and, wow. um, literally when I was in high school and she would fax them fax, fax machines were a thing because it was the nineties. And, uh, yeah, she would fax them to, um, you know, Maxis, uh, Maxis was Ching Chin tire and Maxis, uh, had been making uh, bike tires for a couple years at this point, but they mm-hmm. were still very, very new. And then they started sending me tires to test. And by that point I had gotten a UCI license and had gotten an, an upgrade and all that stuff and was doing okay racing. And, and, uh, and then just kept on giving them feedback. And when I got out of college, Russell Webb uh, at the time was their marketing guy and kind of running the bike division. And, and um, he gave me a job like right out of college. And wow. we started started designing tires with all the athletes. Wow, that's super cool. Sounds like you were a hustler from an early age. Uh, you know what it is, man? I, you know, I think what it comes down to is that I just love bikes and I love uh, like the scene and and just kind of like, I'm always so grateful to still be a part of it. And it all started with an inner tube. I mean, I could have just been like, oh, thanks for the tube. See you later. You know what I mean? But for whatever reason, I was just, I was so psyched that I was still able to ride that day. And it kind of like, I mean, not to sound weird or whatever, but it kind of like changed, changed my life from that moment in a way, you know what I mean? So that was kind of my, my deal. Yeah. That's definitely one of the cooler stories I've heard about how somebody has gotten into the, into the industry. Thanks, man. So you've been around a while. I mean, not as long as some other folks, but how, how has mountain bike tire design and technology evolved over the years? Man, this is a, that could be a podcast in and of itself, I feel like. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, like, you know, it, it used to be that, I mean, first of all, tubeless, I mean, just, just to start with that. Right. I mean, right. but everything used to have an inner tube and, and a lot of things were wire bead and compounds were nowhere near what they are now. Mm. And, you know, everything was like, you know, your like 70 or 80 durometer kind of compound <laughs> and, um, rim brakes, uh, you know, were, were the thing. So you had a kind of design around all those kind of parameters and people didn't really know what, what really worked on a mountain bike tire because it was kind of like the wild west at the time and a lot you look at you look at a tire like say the panaracer smoke which was like the first i i think it was like the first real like aggressive mountain bike tire where you looked at that and you said that thing's badass and Mm -hmm. you know and whatever um and even that you know it doesn't really make a lot of sense on the front, you know, cause it's a big paddle. Um, so it's, 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 it's funny. Things have really gotten very specific per category as well as just with materials. So, you know, obviously folding beads came in, sidewall protection came in, tubeless ready came in compounds, um, really directional treads, mm-hmm. you know, it used to almost look like it was like the sole of a hiking boot or something. You know, you look at, <laughs> yeah. you look at like a specialized ground control from like the eighties, nineties, early nineties kind of era. And it, it, it kind of almost looks like a hiking boot or something, you know, in a way um, it doesn't, it doesn't scream like, Oh, that's going to roll fast and hook up. You know what I mean? Right. And it was, and, and for, and the reason I mentioned that, I don't say that to speak poorly of that tire. What the reason I mentioned that was because that thing was the bomb back then. <laughs> that was like, that was like the, one of the better tires on the market. And mm-hmm. And looking at it now, you're like, oh, wow, it looks so simple. So, yeah, I mean, a lot has evolved. A lot's come from motorsport. And then just kind of over time, what has worked and and what hasn't, you know? So you kind of, you learn along the way. Yeah, that's interesting. And yeah, I mean, you kind of hint at it too, that the bikes have evolved. And so that's kind of made the tires evolve with it. I mean, 
take taking breaks, for example, like now you have way more stopping power. And so the tire is going to need to react differently to that than, you know, it would have in the rim brake days, I guess. Oh, yeah. I mean, just the, the sheer power that you have from a disc brake uh, now, but also you like your riding is different, right? So like you break you break later because you can rely on that power of a disc brake. So that puts like an awful lot of stress on that tire and a really short amount of time. Mm-hmm. And then you're also in a time period where we're trying to use softer compounds. So how do you make that grippier, softer tire last longer? And yeah. there's these these are the kind of conundrums that you try to solve and design around as a product guy in the bike biz these days. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Obviously, a lot of different competing factors and things that you're trying to optimize for. So I want to ask you, what's going on with tire widths right now? Seems like <laughs> that's the question every year, but you know, obviously a lot of new options yeah. are coming and now some of them are going. Like, do you think things have settled down a little bit or, or even if they haven't, like, where are we right now? Yeah. I mean, I think within mountain bike, things are definitely starting to streamline a bit. Hmm. You know, you look at you look at things like in, say, the gravel segment or kind of like emerging segments between mountain bike and gravel. Like you, you're seeing you're seeing a, like a lot of like larger gravel sizes now, which kind of almost starting to flirt with like a cross country size in many ways. <laughs> yeah. And and you're, you're you're starting to go from like you're measuring from like the C size. Like, is that a, a like a 48 C or a 47 C or is it a 2.0? Is it a 2.0 yet? Like where, you know, and, and when you get to that, when you get to that 50 mark, you know, people start kind of calling it like the, the inch size, you know, but yeah, is it good? It sounds like it's going the same direction, kind of the mountain bike tires did for a while, right? Where it's just like, let's go wider, wider until we reach the point where we're like, that's, that's too wide. Is that kind of what's happening in gravel? Dude, a hundred percent. Yeah, man. I I have this theory that in the bike biz, somebody will like acknowledge a trend, right? And then they'll say, oh, well, I want to do more of that and more, 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 because they think more is better. Right. And it worked sometimes, sometimes it works to a point. And then they say, whoa, 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 that was too far. And they back off and they and they correct it. Right. And I think we, we saw that with like, you know, 3.0 tires and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And and then they backed off and then they kind of have come back down to like, you know, that somewhere between a 2426 kind of a sweet spot for a lot of trail bikes, right? So and um, you know, the funniest part about this being a someone kind of almost from the old school anyway, is that <laughs> Dude, it all still starts with a two. You know what I yeah. mean? Uh-huh. Like two, two point one, two point eight. Like how many like tenths of an inch can you really slice and dice this thing and and have like this whole revolution within an industry? It's hilarious to me. But <laughs> you know, if you put like a top racer on one or the other, I mean, yeah, sure. You know, races are won and lost in thousands of a second. I get that. But like, mm-hmm. you know, it's as far as like a fun factor and just going out and and whatever. What I always say is ride what's fun. You know, like. Uh, I have a, a super crazy light XC hardtail. I have like an enduro bike and they're both fun for different reasons and they're way different. You know what I mean? So I don't think you're going to have like one universal solution. And I also do think hitting back to what you said a second ago about the gravel scene and emulating mountain biking, it's a hundred percent that if you go to a gravel race, you'll see people riding, you know, cyclocross tubulars. You'll see people <laughs> riding, 
Oh, fat bikes. I mean, like literally it's, cra- I mean, it's crazy. No, for real. Like if you go down to the, like the Mid-South event, we, we've gone to that event the last few years. It used to be called Land Run. And that literally you'll see people on 29 or hardtails. You'll see people running, you know, a traditional like 38C gravel tire. You see a lot of that, of course, but it's kind of like whatever's fun, you know, from a, from like a, you know, what should people ride? I mean, yeah, sure. Top of the bell curve for mountain bike right now. Like I said, it's going to be anywhere between that 2.35 really to say Mm 2.6. And, you know, that might sound like a lot to some people, but you're really talking about not a lot of width difference there. And so depending on the tire, tread and design and setup and your wheels and all that stuff it's not vastly different in the grand scheme of things but you know there there are there are advantages yeah i was gonna say i mean it's hard these days to you know you look at somebody's bike from a distance and you know people like to play the guessing game like oh what are those two fours two six and i mean you can't tell because it, it does have a lot to do with the rest of your setup your rim width and all that kind of stuff yeah, and, and that's really been another big curveball lately on um, the last few years anyway, because, you know, ETRTO is actually changing. For people listening, ETRTO is uh, basically a standardization within the industry that ensures that tires and rims fit properly together. And so within that, um, there are sort of like established design parameters where you'll you'll basically say this width of a tire should go on this width of a rim and it's it's within a range you know what i mean and so with all that said i mean if you put a a 2.25 tire on a you know a 30 mil internal rim it's probably going to measure more like a Mm 2.35 or maybe maybe even a 2.4 depending depending on the tolerances you know what i mean so and then what people do is then they go online and then you know, they'll share their experiences, positive or otherwise. And, uh, you know, some people get a little upset about it. But at the end of the day, it's like, dude, you, you put a tire on a wider rim, it's going to get wider. <laughs> right. It's just math. It's just physics. Well, how important is tire weight to consumers right now? The, do you see more riders that are willing to trade a little bit of extra weight for better traction? Yeah. And attraction and durability. Um, I think that's absolutely something we're seeing. You know, a long time ago, uh, it used to be like, how light can you make this? And and then people started realizing that, well, if you're going to pinch flat the thing in two seconds, it doesn't really matter how light that is because <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not gonna, again, it's not going to be super fun, right? Yeah. Like, it comes back to just what's fun, right? So like, yeah, there's been a movement I've seen in the industry across really all categories where, I mean, even like World Cup XC guys, you know, they're running larger, larger volume tires. So you have a bigger air cushion, but also then people are more willing to run tire liners or sidewall protection type tires or things of this nature. And, and it's all in the name of durability and then also traction because you can run them, you know, at a slightly lower air pressure. So you have a better footprint. Whereas before, if you ran them at a lower air pressure, you were definitely going to pinch flat. Right. But now with a liner, especially with a liner and especially with the the newer casings, you can get away with a little lower pressure, a little better traction, uh, especially if you're running a little bigger air volume. Hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. You, you mentioned in that statement, even cross country, you know, pro athletes, like they're the ones, if anybody is trying to save weight, it's them. And, and even they are, are seeing that it's okay to have a little extra weight if, as long as you get these additional benefits. Yeah. I mean, the worst, worst thing you can do is be one of those guys 
and train for years, right? And then you fly around the world to some race. I mean, the, Olymp- the Olympics, right? Something like that situation. And, and you get a flat because you wanted to save like 30 grams. It all comes down to that sometimes, you know? And so, uh, yeah, there's definitely a movement to do that. And, I, and the reason I bring up cross country is because, as you say, that is the spot where you think mm-hmm. that they would be the most crazy. Downhillers forever have just been about grip and durability. Grip and durability. Don't get a flat. Make sure the tire hooks up. Mm-hmm. probably in the reverse order make sure the tire hooks up first and then make sure you don't get a flat right but so yeah that's kind of how it works yeah that's fascinating so what are you seeing in terms of demand for 29er versus 27.5 diameters so yeah i mean there's definitely been a movement for 29ers obviously across all categories i mean Really, last year you saw you know a lot of 29er downhill bikes and things like that, and and I use that as an example because 29er is the same as 700C, which is a road size, mm-hmm. which is the the predominant road size, and then that came over to cross country, and then it made its way through all the other categories, finally you know into that into that downhill scene. So that said, though, like you know I'm five nine, you know I'm like Joe Average, um, I ride a 29er, but you know, I do like the pop and the feel of uh, 27.5. And, you know, I have a lot of friends who still ride 27.5 and um, especially people who are not tall enough to handle a 29er bike or just like that kind of like that big wagon wheel gyroscopic effect of like a bigger wheel where all that weight is further away from your hub. I mean, it really depends on what you're doing and uh, what you're trying to accomplish. But I do think that we have seen more of a push into 29ers across really all categories and I, I don't think that that's terribly that's like not cutting edge news or anything but at the same time <laughs> where you're going to see you know obviously 27 fives I think still are um, people who want to run a little bit extra tire volume so you know obviously that whole thing about how if you run like a roughly a 262 a 27.5 is roughly the same as like a 235 29er in terms of mm-hmm. outer circumference so uh, from from frame clearance as well as like bottom bracket height on your bike, you know, they're kind of interchangeable around that around that kind of size. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of mountain bikers obviously are hearing that 29ers are, I guess, more popular at the moment. You know, definitely more new bikes that are coming out seem to be 29ers. But then I think they're also wondering, like, is this just like a marketing push or or is this is this for real? I mean, can you speak to that do you see that demand like sure like we sell you know three times as many 29er as 27.5 or is it 50 50 or like where kind of where are we at right now i mean i definitely think that there was two years ago three years ago there was like obviously a huge spike in 27.5 and certain brands like full-on stopped making 29ers and they all they went all 27.5 for a season or two you know and yeah and then they're back doing 29er stuff now but you know it's definitely noticeable accelerating on a 27.5 versus 29 or it's it's like shifting a gear on your bike i mean like it's going to accelerate faster right Mm -hmm. but when you hit big bumps and things like that or just in terms of just like rolling um once it's up to speed the 29er does seem to roll a little better and uh you know i've I've had a lot of experiences with both and my personal take on it is that i'm not terribly surprised to see those who can ride a 29er do so 
But at the same time, like, you know, my wife, like she loves riding her 27 five bike with like a two, six tire on it and just smacking stuff, <laughs> you know, I mean, and again, it comes back to what's fun. So I, I do think there will be a place for 27 five in the market. Um, but I do think that, I mean, it's not even, I think, I mean, it's a fact like 29 er is like definitely across all categories now, you know, all my enduro buddies, like every single <laughs> one of them, it, you know, has basically switched back to 29 er So, and, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's what I'm seeing anyway. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if that answered your question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think so. I think, I think speaking to what people think is fun. I mean, it sounds like there will always be people that think that one is more fun or better suited for them than the other. And I mean, I guess people, they really want to know too, like, are these tires going to be available? And it sounds like you're saying they're, they will because there's demand for it. Yeah. Especially with like, um, you know, we support the kids, uh, racing leagues around the country. There's a number of them, NICA and, and new in new England, it's called Nesca. I mean, my daughter's 11 and she rides, you know, uh, all the time and, and she's not quite on a 27 five wheel yet, but she will be, you know, before she rides a 29 or like, as, mm. as like new riders are coming up and, and we've seen immense growth, uh, in the youth market, you know, in, in racing or otherwise just participation wise. And, um, you know, so obviously, you know, as you're, as you're growing, you know, uh, you'll, you'll hit a 27 five before you hit a 29 or, you know? Yeah. So I think that's notable. Yeah. Interesting. So walk us through like a really simple explanation of the anatomy of a mountain bike tire. Like what are the key parts and like, how do they all kind of work together? You know, the, some, some people actually even call it a carcass, but the, the casing mm -hmm. is really like the kind of the framework that you, you build everything off of. Okay. And for the vast majority of mountain bike tires, that casing is going to be made out of nylon cloth. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be kind of measured uh, in what's called TPI, which is threads per inch. So if you look at like uh, really up close on a mountain bike casing, you'll actually see like threads. Mm -hmm. And TPI is is uh, is just that. I mean, the more threads you can fit within an inch on a single layer, the thinner the threads are, um, which means that they're more flexible. And so that's why, I like on the road, on the road road market you'll see like vittoria makes cotton road tires uh for our you know pro level competition uh, tires in the corsa line and the reason that we make those out of cotton instead of nylon for that level of racing is simply because uh, they're super supple so when you hit like a crack in the road or anything like that they have less rolling resistance so the same is true on a mountain bike tire you'll see like tires from like a department store and they have very low TPI, so very thick, thick, thick threads within that nylon casing. Okay. And um, so, like, typically, like, on a, on a race mountain bike tire, you're going to see something like 120 TPI. It's a very common thread count. And, uh, and that's pretty much what we use through anything that's a tubeless-ready Vittoria tire. So that's the first thing that they build off of. Then there, there's a, a big roller machine that kind of looks like a pasta maker almost. Um, and they, they, they squish this material through it with rubber and, and the rubber gets basically squished into the material. And that is the casing material. It's called a topping colander. So, uh, once that's done, you can, you can make it black, you can make it tan wall, you can, you know, you can do all sorts of crazy things with that. 
but a, a major important piece of the casing is then going to be the bead. So mm. that bead used to just be uh, a steel wire. Uh, now it's it's aramid, uh, which is commercially known as Kevlar. But huh? basically, you know, the casing material gets wrapped around that, and uh, that's essentially what fits into the hook of your rim. The difference, though, is that for a tubeless ready bead, it's a different shape. So if you're talking about like a traditional hook, uh, rim, right? Not a hook, not this whole hookless thing. We're not going to get into that, but basically like <laughs> a regular, like hooked rim where like you have, like you look at your rim and there's like a little like lip on it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you, if you were to like, look at that, like if you could like cut your rim and like look at the end of it, like in cross section, there's going to be like kind of like a, a square corner in there. Um, and so, you know, tubeless ready beads have a much sharper bead, uh, shape, uh, that's, that's much more square, rather than that traditional teardrop shape that you would just get if you wrapped a piece of material around a wire. Yeah. And that's made to, to really lock in and hold the pressure and also create an airtight seal. So for that reason, uh, beads have really become something that have really, I should say, evolved over like the last 10 years, especially. And then there's, there's a bit of the bead called the Schaefer. And the Schaefer basically is sort of like what pads that and creates that positive seal. So on a higher quality tire, you'll see like a very defined line right above the bead on the tire. And it's it's basically made to, to do that, to create that really positive seal for tubeless uh, use, as well as protection so that your rim doesn't cut uh, into the tire. So that's kind of casing 101 in a nutshell. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. And then, so then you have the rubber that's... Um yeah, molded on top of the casing, I guess, for lack of a better word. It's all sort of like glued together. Yeah. <laughs> Melted together. Vulcanized. Yeah, that's a good word. Yep, it is. It sounds uh, pretty dorky. But yeah, it's it's uh, that's essentially what it's called. And so basically what happens is, like, for instance, if you're making like one of our 4C tires, like we have a 4C machine that has four separate sort of like they look like injectors, essentially. They're like a big like uh, nozzle, right? And the, and the thing, basically, the rubber gets fed into this big funnel and it gets squirt out, you know, this, this end piece that goes onto a conveyor belt. Mm-hmm. And the way that those four different types of rubbers, those four different types of compounds are basically laid down onto a flat conveyor belt. And then what they do is they'll actually cut a length of that and they'll, they'll wrap it around the casing and then they'll put it into the mold. Okay. This is a very simplified process right here, but I mean, it's, it's much more complex, but basically essentially that's what happens. And then it gets pressed up into the tread mold, which is obviously a negative of what the tread looks like. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, a few minutes later, uh, they open the mold and, and out pops a tire. So in terms of, uh, the way the compounds work and how it's done, you know, there's obviously, just thousands of different compound variations out there. We use compounds that are enhanced uh, with graphene, mm-hmm. uh, and we're actually on our second generation of this. You know, people ask me about graphene a lot within compounds. The, the point of it, we'll just start there. The point was that we wanted to, again, take away any compromise. We wanted to make something that, as a performance tire, lasted longer than typical performance tires. We wanted to make it grippy, but yet still roll fast. Cause oftentimes if you make a tire too grippy, it's not going to roll fast, right? Things like this. So we did a ton of testing 
And uh, we actually came out with our second generation of graphene last year, graphene 2.0, mm-hmm. uh, where we were able to actually kind of functionalize, you know, and really pinpoint metrics that we we're trying to kind of achieve within mm-hmm. different different categories, right? Like, so like a, an enduro tire has to grip a lot better than, say, a, a tire that you're going to use for like city use, where yeah. city city use is going to be much more about longevity or something like this, right? So there's different there's different things you're trying to achieve here. The cool thing about that whole process has been that Vittoria was definitely a leader in this, which is really cool. We're seeing other companies kind of hop on now. Everybody, I mean, Oakley made clothing with graphene in it, you know, <laughs> wow. from, for, for, for the heat dissipation properties and things like this. And you'll see tennis rackets and skis and things like this. But so many companies, they'll use terminology to describe their compounds and it'll be a marketing term, right. you know, and, and, and they, they, they have to call it something. I get it. <laughs> but like people have asked me, dude, is this totally hype? Like, is this true? Like, what do you guys, what is, and I, the coolest thing is you literally can say, you can Google it. <laughs> it's, we, we're not making this up. Like yeah. we literally, we literally tell you what's in the compound. It's not like we're calling it something and then it's implied. It's like, like we call it a graphene compound because we put graphene on the compound. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> it's, it's literally that simple. Yeah. It makes it a lot harder to compare. I mean, we run into that all the time as journalists, right? You know, everybody's got their, you know, like you said, their marketing term for the thing that they're doing, but it's like, well, if everybody's doing something different, then you really can't, you can't compare. Right. Right. I mean, and, and, uh, you know, the, the, the default kind of answer is that, that we, we typically give is, you know, popular science wrote an article about our compounds. Popular science doesn't care about bicycle marketing. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like they, they would, they're a science-based publication. Like they wouldn't have wrote that article if it wasn't something notable about the science behind it. Right. So yeah. that, that was, a, that was kind of a cool little milestone for us when, when that happened. But yeah, so compounds really at the end of the day, you want the tire to, like I said, you want it to grip and you want it to last as long as possible given the use. Right. So much like tread design, which we'll get into in just a sec, but I mean, basically like you're, you're designing a product around a specific terrain or use. So whether that terrain is pavement or dry, dusty trails or rocks or roots or whatever, mm-hmm. you have to kind of take all that into account. And so the compound is definitely a critical piece of that, as well as just the things that consumers expect when they buy something that is a premium product, right? If you're buying a mm-hmm. premium right. XC tire, you're going to want that to roll fast. And so, you know, you have to make sure that that's one of the check marks that you, that you design into it. Mm-hmm. I mean, and then, you know, once you kind of have your casing and, and all that and, and the compound you want to use, it does come back to tread design. So fast is a funny thing. <laughs> <laughs> so what's fast in one place is not fast in another. And like if you look at, say, a mud tire and you have like, you know, big spiky cleated knobs well, that's designed to penetrate into the ground mm-hmm. and then clean out uh, on the next kind of rotation. Yeah. Whereas, like, if you have like a hard pack tire, that's a surface phenomenon. Like, you're never actually digging into the terrain. It, you're you're trying to create surface area that then has grip. Yeah. As a result, it's almost, it's like a basketball shoe on a basketball court. So, and then and then there's everything in between, right? Like, if you have like a mixed use tire, you have to have enough surface area for that kind of a situation but you have to have enough room to clean but then it still has to roll fast because oftentimes if you have like a lot of voids on a tire it's not going to roll as fast Mm -hmm. things like that yeah so it gets super duper techie 
And what we've what we've done at Vittoria, you know, I've having been like just a tread design dork since I was in high school. Like, <laughs> I mean, like literally try to create tread designs that have enough room to clean, but on the surface of like, say each knob or each cleat, depending on like kind of what tire you're talking about, mm-hmm. we put some sort of a texture like siping to, you know, maximize the grip given that small surface area. So as an example, like if you were to ride on like a muddy trail, yeah, great. Like your tire is going to cut into that, but inevitably you're going to hit some rocks and roots or something elsewhere. And then your tire, your tire is not going to dig into a rock or a root. So you have to make sure that on top of that cleat, you have some siping, which is basically nothing more than like an engineered groove. Mm-hmm. And, and then it can grip on that surface as well. And then, you know, it's, it's going to be a mixture of everything kind of all together. So I don't know. It was kind of like a lot. Uh, does that, yeah. does that make sense so far? Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, there's, there's obviously a lot going on and a lot of thought goes into it. I mean, I think for a lot of people, you know, as consumers, you know, you, you maybe you look at a tire in the store. The first thing that pops out to you is probably the tread pattern. You know, that's the thing that's like most obvious, but yeah, it's helpful to understand sort of how the compounds play into it and, and also the, the sidewalls and the beads and, and everything, really. I mean, all of it, it's it's a complete package. Mm, yeah. And at the end of the day, it has to work together as one package, right? So, and that's, it all comes back to getting feedback. Athlete feedback's critical. Having been like a tester athlete years ago, and and, and I understand like, I can under I can appreciate you know what these testers are going through and 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 they're trying to make sure that they have you know a successful race or whatever and that also like trying something like step by step like incremental changes mm. to see if we can make improvements on certain aspects. Oftentimes we have kind of product validation before we even launch the product. I mean I know like for instance uh, you know a course of speed uh, is, a, is a road tire and i know there's a mountain bike podcast but i'll just say really quick like on the grand tour is that one every single individual time trial and it was like one of those things where i was like wow okay that definitely works <laughs> you know on the mountain bike side uh, i was standing at interbike a week after we launched the barzo uh, xe tread mm-hmm. in 2015 when when it won world championships pauline pauline won that race that year just like she did this year mm-hmm. and uh unfortunately she, was, she wasn't on our tires this year but when she won her first mountain bike world championship, she was on the Barzo and it was literally like weeks apart from the trade show. I mean, it was crazy. So, um, that kind of a thing can happen and it's kind of fun when it all comes together. And, uh, although it's at the same time, it's not typically like a huge surprise because the process is structured such that you have this validation before it gets launched. So it's never done until, it's launched. Right. So it's the kind of thing where like, it's not going to get launched unless it's, it's to that level anyway. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of the reason that like, since really that moment, like our product line, especially has been vastly different than it had been in the past. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, you're talking about like mud tires specifically, and then sort of contrasting that with a hard pack tire. So, you know, mountain bikers like to talk about owning a quiver of bikes to handle a variety of different conditions or trail types. What would a quiver of mountain bike tires look like? Could you put together, you know, like two or three sets of tires to do the job? Like, does everybody need like one set of mud tires and one hard pack? Or like, does that that even make sense? No, it totally does. I mean, the first thing is going to be based on where you live, right? I mean, if you're in Arizona, you're not going to really need mud tires a whole lot. But, you know, in New England, uh, where I live, we have 
really four true seasons. Mm -hmm. And, and then oftentimes you have this weird thing where it overlaps. I mean, like quite literally yesterday it was 60 degrees and I was riding outside in shorts and I know to somebody in in Georgia, that might seem like (laughs) it's still pretty, pretty cold. But anyway, I was like, hell yeah, it's warm. I'm going to wear shorts today. (laughs) And, uh, the, uh, and then dude today, like it snowed. I mean, like, I mean, you, you literally have this temperature swing. And so you have to have, a quiver, as you say, to as a mountain biker to make sure that you're prepared for for stuff. And you know, I mean, it's not realistic to think that people are going to change their tires based on the weather. I mean, you'd be changing your tires every day, especially here. But <laughs> I mean, you know, like seasonally, you'll have kind of something you ride in the spring, something you ride like most of the season, mm-hmm. and then something you ride probably in the winter months. And so, like, just to kind of map out an example of that, like my my setup is that I typically run like a larger volume more aggressive tire all winter that can handle some snow and things like that, you know, and then I'll run in the springtime, something that's going to clean really well because the trails are going to be a little sloppy and you have to respect all the trail work that gets done and all that stuff. Numba is do always doing a lot of work up here. And, and obviously when they say that you can't ride, you're not supposed to ride, but all that said, yeah, inevitably you're going to hit a mud hole somewhere or something like that. And so you want something that's going to clean in the springtime. And then in the summer, I usually run something that's a touch more aggressive in front and something that rolls a touch faster in back. And that's usually my setup for most of the season. And, uh, so really three sets, you know, on the, I mean, not to, not to beat the gravel examples to death, but like in that product line, we it's called terreno we have a dry a mix and a wet Hmm. and uh, we did that for cyclocross people because cyclocross people were always asking you know what do i need what do i need and it's like well in you know early season through like almost october you need dries and you need mixes for like three weeks and then you need wets for like november through january the reason i bring that up is because it was a really cool way to learn even after doing this for decades i'm still learning, you know, and it's still the kind of thing where you say, huh, you know, I never really thought about it that way before. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, maybe we can apply that same kind of methodology to other segments. And and that's literally what we've done. Yeah. That's, that's really helpful. Cause I think a lot of mountain bikers, I mean, we just want to ride first of all. Right. So yeah, we don't always want to put a lot of thought into it. And you know, if there's a tire that says this is an all rounder, it's like, check, that's good. I can use it for everything. But uh, like you're saying, you can get more out of a tire if it's suited for, you know, maybe just the season. I mean, not it's not every single ride and it's not, you know, oh, I'm riding this trail versus that trail today. I need to change my tires. But but yeah, maybe putting a little more thought into it than just go with the go with the all around tire. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, that's really what it comes down to. You know, I mean, I think for a lot of people, if they just if you broke it down into like, you know, thirds in, in, in terms of segments, you'd probably be pretty dialed and in most places anyway. Yeah. So how do you know when it's time to replace a set of mountain bike tires? So, you know, it's a tough question because some people like to get like, you know, completely like bare casing mileage out <laughs> of their tire. And really what it comes down to is when you start feeling uh, an appreciable difference when you're riding in the given situation that that tire is designed for. So, you know, a second ago you were talking about an all-arounder and that checks a lot of boxes for people. But mm-hmm. oftentimes an all-arounder can can be basically kind of okay at everything but not really great at anything kind of a thing. Right, yeah. And so, um, you know, that's why we have so many different models so you can really pinpoint what you need. and then when you're pinpointing what you need, it's based on the terrain and your riding style and all that. So you're buying that tire for specific use. And then, so when you go out 
and you're using it in that specific use and it works for you and you're psyched for a while, eventually, you know, it's going to break down. I mean, it, it has to simply because uh, otherwise it wouldn't be grippy enough to give you the performance you wanted in the first place. So, and uh, despite all our efforts, you know, as designers, we, we, we still haven't solved that one. Um, you know, eventually it will break down eventually. So when it does mm-hmm. and you feel it, you know, not giving you the exact same kind of performance you wanted when it was initially broken in, that's really the time when I change. But at the same time, um, you know, with, with 4C compounds and things like this. So 4C is like a layering process that we use where, as I mentioned earlier, like there's, there's four heads on that extruder and uh, the, the base of your tread has a, a firmer compound than the top kind of performance stickier compound. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is with that, the point of that is that the base of your tread is more stable so it doesn't sort of like paper clip off and you don't have that like wrinkling at the base of your knobs and all that stuff. Yeah. It lasts, it, it, you know, in, in theory, it should wear like your car tires where it wears, you know, from, from your tread down to your casing. And imagine if you're riding down the road in your car and your, your tread peeled off, like it'd be, be pretty bad, right? So, so my point in saying all this is that, you know, some people will on a 4C tire get to that other layer and then they'll feel like where it's not as sticky across rocks and roots or stuff like that, mm-hmm. but yet there's still enough tread on it to ride it. And that's where you have to make the judgment call and say, okay, like if I live in a dry terrain area, it's not going to be as big of a deal. But if you're like riding in British Columbia or New England, you're definitely going to notice it more um, when you get past that, that like halfway mark. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, I, I think it is hard. It's hard for me and I'm sure others as well, because it, it is so gradual. You know, it's like every ride, a little more is getting worn off a little more and you kind of just get used to it. Right. Like as it, as it wears, you know, it's not like a, all of a sudden you're like, Whoa, what, what just happened to my tire? And, you know, I think, I think too, people are used to like car tires where, what is it? You put the penny in and if, if you can see Abe Lincoln's head or something like you're, you're okay or you're not okay. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, I guess visually too, you could maybe inspect your tire and kind of get an idea of like where you're at in terms of the wear. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. You'll see that siping starting to kind of wear first because it's at the surface and, uh, and that's definitely something, but as you mentioned, it's a gradual wear. And so like, as you ride, you're, you're just, you're comfortable with your bike and it's not really that big of a deal. But then the day comes where you throw a new set on and you're like, Oh my God. Yeah. Right. You can tell that for sure. You know what I mean? And so that's definitely something where it's an immediate improvement, which is cool. Yeah. So one of the things that it seems like people are using a lot more these days and are getting excited about for some weird reason is mountain bike tire plugs. As far as I know, Victoria doesn't offer any of those yet. So are there solutions on the market that you would recommend that like you found work really well? You know, um, you're right. We don't offer them yet. We definitely played around with a lot of things that were constantly evolving our product line. And I'll just leave it at that. But the ones that I've found to work the best, I mean, are just like, you know, those little like bacon strip looking things that you can pretty much get at almost any auto parts store just because they're real, they're real, they're really, really sticky gummy, you know, and, and they'll, they'll fit really well and they're easy to uh, you know apply and and um they're not they don't really care about sealant as far as like being sticky still so it's been that's been that's been something that's worked for for me personally but yeah i mean i know there's a lot of different ones on the market um at the end of the day we're really trying to you know and i don't know that this is a problem you could ever truly solve but any way we can create a tire casing 
that is less susceptible to that in the first place, you know, it's definitely uh, something that we face. So, um, you know, the way we do the chafer on the bead, the sidewall protection, all that stuff, in the event that you still do get a puncture, if you're not running a liner or something like that, I mean, even when you're running a liner, sometimes the rock is just so sharp that it doesn't even take your tire to be compressed for it to get cut sometimes, you know, and, and that's where, that's, that's where one of these plugs, um, is definitely valuable. I think it's, it's cool that people have started using them in mountain bike, but yeah, no, as of right now, um, we don't make one. Um, yeah. Speaking of that though, I mean, I guess tire plugs too are kind of addressing the problem with sealants, right? That, I don't know, when sealant first came out, tubeless tires, you know, there were these demonstrations of people just like hacking huge holes into the tires and somehow sealant would, would seal it up. But that doesn't, obviously doesn't work every time. And so people have had to do these, these tire plug solutions. But Victoria does have a tire sealant. So what kind of makes yours different with, you know, all the choices that are on the market? Like what, where is there room for innovation, I guess? Yeah, no, it's an awesome question. And it's something that actually I get asked a fair bit. Um, so, you know, within tubeless tires, really in bicycle anyway, it started in mountain bike and then it's obviously made its way over the road. And the reason I mentioned that is because there's really two things that are going to be like key kind of metrics with this, which is basically going to be like, how fast can it find the hole? Mm-hmm. And then, and then how big of a hole can it fill? Right. So, for instance, you can make your sealant super thick and it would it would clog a big hole, but it wouldn't find the hole very fast. And likewise, you could make the thing find the hole really fast, but then it just all leaks out of the hole. <laughs> you know what I mean? So so I mean, you know, there there's the the ideal balance is somewhere in between. Uh it's something that our sealant seems to to do pretty well at. And it's also thin enough to use on like smaller volume tires, but it's also like effective enough on bigger volume tires. Uh, which is to say you can ride it in road or mountain uh, and use it in both. Uh, and that's, that's been good. But yeah, I mean, it's um, the other thing is just going to be like longevity with the sealant. Cause you really need to kind of like recharge your sealant, like about every six months or so. Yeah. And the reason is cause you know, Hey, I mean, when the sealant finds the hole in your tire, it's going to hit the air and it's going to evaporate a bit and cause that seal. So your tire is inherently porous. And so over time it's going to kind of, you know, leach out a bit just through your through your casing without you even really knowing and so it's it's definitely something that's uh, just good practice to kind of top up your sealant every once in a while unless you're changing your tires for the season like we spoke about before but yeah i mean if, if i was going to say one thing about the Vittoria sealant it, it's, it's it is a good balance between finding the hole and then sealing the hole yeah that's great I, i've never heard it sort of put that way but you know i think as consumers we focus on like I want something that's going to just seal the hole, but we don't think about, we need something that's going to get to the hole quickly. And yeah, that is a trade-off that obviously is challenging. Yeah. I mean, just to add to that, I mean, like I've been in that, I've tested everything on the market, you know I mean? That's part of my job is to test everybody else's stuff. And so, so often, you know, you'll be on a trail and somebody will be, you know, sit on the side of the trail with a cartridge or a mini pump or something, trying to pump up their tire. And it's a perfect case of the hole was too big to seal really quick and the sealing couldn't get there fast enough. Mm -hmm. And then eventually it kind of sealed and they got like five PSI in the tire and the guy, (laughs) and the guy's like, the guy's like, I'm good. I'm good. And he uh, he keeps pumping it up. And then like that little scab of sealant pops off and you got to wait again. (laughs) It's like the, it's the worst thing in the world. And, uh, you just, you know, so, you know, it happens, but that's part of sealant testing. Yeah, definitely. 
So with mountain bikers preferring to run lower and lower tire pressures these days, how has that influenced tire design? First of all, if you design it to be a touch more square, it's going to deal with that lower pressure a bit better because you're already designing the contact patch to be in more contact with the ground in the first place. Mm -hmm. But the other thing it does is when you lean over, if you're on like a super round profile tire and you lean over on it, you know, as you lean over the, all that force like increases, right? So like you're, you're asking the tire to kind of overcome like a, uh, a bigger kind of obstacle to kind of grab and hold onto the ground, especially if you like really lean over fast and, and, and then that's when you kind of understeer, right? So if you have a bit more of a square profile, those side knobs engage earlier in the lean and they can kind of grab on and then hold on as you lean uh, versus being kind of surprised at the last second when you lean all the way over on around a profile. So the profiles I would say are, are the biggest thing. But then the other thing is there's been with all this evolution, especially in the last five years or so, you're seeing a lot of tires in the market where like the side knobs will just rip right off. And so it's really made designers kind of like address that um, and make sure that you either put like uh, more support outside of that side tread or like what we've done, like I said, with the 4C before with the layering of the, the compounds so that you have like a firmer base compound, which is much more stable. But then also we've done some things where like I use what's called, I, I call it progressive sipe width. And the idea is that the a bigger sipe flexes more than a smaller sipe. So like, for instance, if you look at like the side knob of like our Martello, um, you'll see that on the inside effective edge of that side knob, like the, the edge that does all the work on your side knob, right? The inside edge, there's like a big sipe first, and then the sipes get progressively smaller. So when that knob compresses, like sort of like an accordion, mm -hmm. it's really gummy on that inside edge, but it's really much more edge. So instead of flopping over, it literally compresses. And it's something that gives you a much more controlled feel, much more progressive feel, but it also lengthens the useful life of your tire because it, you know, the, the wear characteristics are going to be very different at that point, but it still gives you all the performance benefits. So that's one way as an example of how tires have designed, designs, I should say, have evolved rather with lower air pressure use in mind because before it like wasn't even a thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like, right. it was just like an, it was like an even tread depth and it was a rounder profile and that was kind of it. Yeah. Well, it seems like one of the solutions or things that people have done to compensate for air pressures is, uh, these new tire inserts and Vittoria seems like was a fairly early mover in this category. So what are the advantages of running tire inserts in your mind? I mean, we're, we've been given that there are a lot of them, but like, what's kind of the the primary to you? From a from a feel and performance standpoint, there's still an air pocket that's a tunable air pocket, like between the liner and, and the underside of your tread there. So your tire can still move around, move around and conform to the terrain. Uh, which is critical for traction. If you had a very rigid tire casing, your traction would be horrible because um, the tire couldn't then conform to the terrain, right? So that's part of the part of the reason that there's air in tires is for cushion, but it's also for for that traction. So anyway, uh, all that said, yeah, uh, liners allow you to have a tunable air pocket, so you still maintain that traction. But when you bottom it out. It feels like a volume spacer in your fork or something, mm -hmm. where it really like you you can't. There's none of that like harsh twang like when you smack your rim. 
it's literally like a thump and people have like a breakthrough. Like the first time I feel like they ride liners and, and, you know, cause they go through this mental thing where they're like, I don't want to add weight. I don't want to pay the money for it, all that stuff. And then they try it and they're, they're like, Oh my God, like how did I ride without this? <laughs> you know, particularly in the back wheel. And, um, it's, I mean, I, I run one on every single bike I have. And, um, I mean, and, and not, not because I work for Vittoria because like, honestly, like I, it's it uh, even I, especially I'll say this I, I said it earlier but on the XT crowd like you think that they would be crazy weight conscious and they wouldn't use it all of the top XT World Cup guys are using liners whether they tell you or not um, often clicks sponsor but they're all running them and um, the thing about it is it matters more the lighter your bike is because it's less of a proportion of the overall weight if you're worried about the weight piece but take take the weight out of it on an xc bike your tires and your wheels are lighter and skinnier and so um you have less to actually take that impact so it's actually more critical in that scenario to run a liner so i think aligners typically came in and they were like a downhiller enduro guy thing and they absolutely still are. But at the same time, um, I think it's actually most critical in XC, uh, especially because XC courses have gotten pretty gnarly lately, too. Um, there's like a. Yeah, for sure. The top ones if like, I mean, you know, racing downhill like in the 90s. It's like a lot of the XC courses now are like harder than the downhill courses were back then. Yeah, definitely. So what kind of sets the Vittoria airliner apart from the other tire inserts that are on the market it's it's got like a definitely i mean they're all different and yeah i think people are curious to know like what kind of design decisions went into it and like why they are the way that they are sure yeah so the victoria airliner is is unique for a couple of reasons so first of all we have four different sizes and the sizes are actually widths so small, medium, large, extra large, mm-hmm. which ha- which handles basically from an XC tire all the way up to like almost like a fat bike, um, really like a, a large plus size tire and, and beyond. And so they come in a, a, a length. And what you do is you wrap it around your wheel, you cut it, you zip tie it, you put our decal around it to, to kind of make sure that that seam stays aligned. And so basically you can, you first of all, with that step, some people are like, is that, is that cheesy to do that? But honestly, that step allows you to, first of all, make sure that it fits super tight on whatever rim you have. Mm-hmm. But second of all, it allows you to tune how it interacts with the beat of your tire. So for instance, if you're running, because rim widths are all over the place right now. So if you're running like a traditional XC wheel, you might have like a 23 internal. I mean, like that's really these days really narrow, but Two years ago, like that was pretty normal for XC wheels, you know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? So, yeah. and, or you might have like a 35 internal, like, or anything between for most bikes, right? So, you know, if we were to make it just sort of like a hoop, um, it would fit different on different rims. So we wanted to make sure that you could like, you, the, the rider could then really make things damn tight on your wheel. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, is that for shops and stuff like that, cause we, we want to make sure that shops are able to then, you know, service these things too. They don't have a gajillion skews. They have like four skews, which is a good thing. But the big reason why ours is different um, is that you have uh, full compatibility with any valve on the market. So there's a there's a 
sort of a groove on the top and a groove on the bottom. And the groove on the bottom allows you to run any valve you already have in your wheel. You don't have to run our special valve. Right. You don't, ha- you don't have to try to find the valve hole while you're installing the thing, and it's a big pain. It's not like that. So, And then the groove on the top, it gives you more volume for that tunable air pocket. But the cool thing is, on either side of that groove, sort of like the, the edge of the groove comes to a point. And uh, so when you compress that, that point then gets wider as you compress more material. So it compre- compresses progressively. So basically, like, it's not just like a wham, uh, I can really feel it, that's where it engaged and whatever. It actually kind of feels very much more progressive because of that, and um, which is great. It feels much more intuitive that way, mm-hmm. and uh, kind of works through the suspension well. I typically, one little thing that I typically do is, if you're on the edge tire size-wise, uh, I usually size down one. So, like, uh, you know, if you're running, say, a 2.35 tire, you could run a medium and it would definitely fit in there. Yeah. Or you could run a small and which is more for like an XC tire. I personally like how that feels better because, um, it gives you a bit more air pocket and, um, the air pocket itself is going to ramp up, um, as it gets compressed. And then by the time it hits the liner, it feels a bit more intuitive. You still have the protection. It's a little lighter. So yeah, if you're going to air on one side or the other, I would just always go one side smaller if you're on the edge. Yeah. Interesting. So you worked for Maxis actually at the time that the Minion was being developed. Tell us about your involvement in the launch of that, you know, now iconic tread pattern. I mean, I think a lot of people are fans of that tire and yeah. So yeah, God, where to be. All right. So, (laughs) so I, like I said earlier, I was uh, lucky enough to be hired by Maxis uh, a long time ago. And, and, um, you know, I spent 10 years there and, and, you know, honest to God, when I left Maxis, we had accomplished a lot of things. And I was thinking about doing my own tire brand, and I knew that Vittoria had a, a good quality control in their factory, as well as produced tires for Vittoria produces tires for a lot of other companies that I'm not going to name. But and so I actually went there to do my own tire brand because I wanted to kind of take what I had kind of learned working with all the athletes at Maxis and and kind of bring it over here. But all that said, yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of people who I met in this scene, I, I met when I was working at Maxis, obviously. And so, yeah, to speak to that really quick, I mean. Um, it was a special time. The minion itself was the very first tire design I was involved with. I have the original mold drawing for the minion and, uh, I have my contract still from that era, which kind of details everything I went through. But I mean, you know, uh, with every project you have an athlete that you deal with and, uh, that you kind of design tires with. And I have a whole roster of athletes in Victoria. I do this with as well. The athlete that I that I worked with on the Minion project was Colin Bailey. Okay. So he was a top U.S. racer at the time, and he's a mechanic in the industry now. But and basically, Russell Webb was like, "Hey, you and Colin, go figure out like a new downhill tire." <laughs> and so I was like, "All right, cool." So Colin had like some initial sketches of the Minion, and uh, the, it was sort of like we were, we were sitting in uh, West Virginia at a hotel room. I remember, and I remember taking his drawing and saying, it's kind of like upside down and backwards almost like I remember taking it and looking through the drawing at the light yeah. and saying, if you can, if you can imagine it projected this other way, you'd have pockets for all these kind of like directions to kind of pack dirt into and things like that. So, you know, he kind of definitely had a, a vision. I don't mean to speak for him at all. Total respect. Yeah. But, but basically, you know, it was, it was my job as the product guy then to to take an idea from an athlete and translate it into a product. 
And that, that was my involvement with the Minion. So I was able to speak his language as a writer, you know, albeit he, he was a better writer than me. You know, I, I still was at, I still had a license. I was still there. You know what I mean? But I mean, but at the same time, I was able to speak his language and then also speak the production language and say, okay, like the tread needs to do this, this, and this across these terrains. And um, so uh, I remember his design was very moto inspired and it didn't have that trademark center kind of swoopy sipe in there um, that you see. And so uh, that was something that I added that night in that hotel room. And then those like L-shaped knobs were actually backwards originally. And so we did that. And then dimensionally, it wasn't like there was uh, perhaps a bit too much space. So we kind of, I re- rescaled everything and basically put it all back together. And I would, I would confidently say that, you know, the first minion mold drawing has my signature and Colin's signature on it. <laughs> That's cool. For that reason. And, 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 you know, I'm, I'm not trying to be like, you know, I did this in a bubble by myself. It's not like that at all. Colin had, he, he had the original, like, um, like we need to do something that that addresses this, and then I I basically took his thought process and put the finishing touches on it as far as how it actually can accomplish those things. So yeah, I mean, without that, without that, it probably would have looked a lot like uh, just more of like a, a moto block tire that didn't have all that nuance that the minion has, like that, like I said, that curve siping, the ramping, the all that other siping on the side knob, and all that stuff. So mm, and I mean, yeah. And, for what it's worth, I mean, you know, uh, I use that as a platform to then do like a lot of the other tires when I was at Maxis and then everything else that I learned from and applied at Vittoria. So, I, you know, that was, I believe, the only tire that Colin was involved with, but I was lucky enough to to kind of go on and design dozens and dozens more from there. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm always thankful for that time, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's really cool to to hear that and to understand like where these tire designs come from. And, you know, I'm sure you've, you've played that process out many, many times since then. And some tires are more successful than others. I mean, what, what's the difference then? Is it, is luck part of it? Like, like are you just, <laughs> you know, I mean, like every time you're working just as hard and you're like, yeah, you know, this, we're following the same process and we're working with athletes, you know, athletes who may even be more talented or less talented or whatever, but still following that, you know, recipe, but some are just going to work better than others. Right. I mean, yeah. And you know, some of it is, you know, art and science being put together. Right. I mean, and, and some of it is being at the right place at the right time and having, having that tire launch at a time where there aren't competitors that have addressed that same thing, mm, yeah. you know, to put this in, in, in a framework just for your listeners. I mean, like that would do, that was 2001. <laughs> yeah. And it's still going strong. It's not, you know, it still works, right? Like, I mean, it, it does. Yeah. I mean, and, and the reason is because we put a whole lot of thought into it and, you know, I mean, and, and absolutely a lot of testing and, and I would say that that was the tire that really put Maxis on the map. Um, I mean, you know, and um, it was the kind of thing where, like, there was some XC tires that um, Steve Larson had done before that and and some other things. But as far as, like, um, in the gravity segment at that time, I mean, this is pre-social media. This is <laughs> mostly mostly pre-e-commerce. Right. And, you know, so, you know, bike shops were trying it out and OEMs were trying it out. And, and um, you know, it, it leveraged a lot of those things to to kind of get some market share for them and, and, and you know, have them grow to kind of what it, what they've become in, in that way. And so, I mean, full respect for 
Dr. Chung and, and everybody at the tech center, you know, there, I mean, um, you can't say they don't make a good product, but the, I will say that it's, it's, it's almost 20 years ago. And if you look at, if you look <laughs> right. at the bikes, I mean, legit, like the bikes that we were putting that on had like, you know, downhill bikes had like 70 degree head angles and like six inches, six inches of travel and, you know, like, you know, 680 bars and stuff. And like, so, I mean, um, it's time, it's time to, um, kind of, um, evolve. And, um, you know, like I said, I mean, I've taken a lot of those lessons and sprinkled them through tires like, you know, Martello or Moda or other tires that I've done for Vittoria, uh, this new Agaro tire or this past year in the trail category, it has a lot of the things that I learned along the way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I would just say, watch this space because we have something coming, uh, that really is going to be uh, a really obvious evolution of everything I've learned. And, uh, it's, uh, I think it's going to make a, a splash, uh, this summer. So stay on the lookout for that. Cool. Yeah. That's exciting. We're looking forward to that. So where are you looking for this like next wave of tire performance gains? Are there parts of the system that still have room for improvement? I mean, is it tread, is it compound, you know, or, or is it just a combination of all that? Yeah. I mean, people have really split that hair uh, a lot uh, recently, especially. And um, so now it's really about improving quality and uh, continually just trying to improve uh, one aspect without sacrificing another, you know, and that's really the game. Like I said, it's not hard to make something that hooks up, but it'll probably be heavy and it'll probably roll slow. You know, it's not hard to make something that rolls fast, but it probably won't have traction. You know what I mean? Like, so mm. it's, it's really a matter of designing one element without sacrificing another element and, um, how that all gets applied. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's that evolution and just riding more and talking to people and, you know, just getting out in front of it and then dealing with, with athletes who operate at a level that may be like a click or two above most people. And if it, if it's proven there, then, you know, the, you know, weekend warriors will be really psyched. Yeah. Yeah. That's really awesome. Well, Ken, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us and really explain tires and also talk about sort of where the trends are heading these days. Really appreciate it. Man, anytime. I could talk about tires for days. So anytime, anytime man, you know me, you know me, you know me. But anyway, dude, I really, I love you. I love what you do. Thank you for doing what you do in the industry and, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to be on today. Yeah. Well, thank you. You can learn more about some of the products we talked about at Victoria.com and be sure to follow the Single Tracks podcast. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Mm -hmm.